Well, it gives me a great pleasure this morning to have the opportunity to introduce our speaker for this morning. Uh, just dawned on me that this man has a long history with Christian Layman Church, but it's been a while since he's been on our staff, so for many of you, you've never really met him or know of him. So I'm going to do a real quick uh, review of his history. It was uh, 36 years ago that he came fresh off of his honeymoon with his young bride to become the senior pastor at Christian Layman Church. And for 17 years, he was our lead pastor until about, I think it was the year 2000, he answered God's call to plant a new work in the Pacific Northwest up in the Seattle, Washington area. And there he's been the lead pastor for 19 years at Lighthouse Christian Church. And not only has he been a local pastor, some of his past uh, tributes are that he actually um, started AACF here at the Berkeley campus 36 years ago. So that was a cool thing that's part of his legacy. Then also he does international work where he's traveled to countries like China, Cambodia, and Vietnam to train pastors uh, and equip them into ministry. So he's done great work. It's a pleasure to have him. He, I can call him many things. I can call him pastor or pastors or mentor and discipler. But most importantly for me, I get to call him a very good friend. So let's have a warm CLC welcome to Pastor Wayne Okamachi. Well, thank you, Kelvin, and wow, good to see you here today. I'm glad you're here. You doing all right? Good. Yeah, you don't look too bad today. <laughs> I, I'm always happy when I get to come back to uh, Christian Layman. I felt like I, I spent a good part of my life here. I loved being here. I loved living in the Bay Area and being part of this church. And actually, uh, the decision that Tina and I made to leave was, I still call it the hardest decision of my life. Um, best decision of my life was to give my life to Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord and did that when I was 15 and uh, I think the second best decision was to ask Tina to marry me um, but the hardest decision was to, to leave this place this church and this family that uh, we had known and loved and served for 17 years but it was in response to the call of God and it was a very clear call although it took one year to discern that call uh, but it was a very clear call, and God has really blessed us. Uh, so today, you know, uh, I'm so uh, honored, really, to be asked to speak, and I'm, I'm glad to do that. And I, um, I've decided to call this message, Navigating Change with Grace. And I want to start uh, by reading some verses from Psalm 121. These verses have been very uh, instrumental in my life. And I'm going to read a couple of verses right now, and then I'm going to tell you when God gave me this verse. You ever had that feeling like God just gave you a passage or a verse or a scripture at a certain point in your life, and it became very instrumental and maybe very influential for you? Well, that's how I became acquainted with this Psalm 121. It says, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And God gave me these verses at a time of tremendous change in my life. 
I was about, uh, I was 19 and I was about to transfer to UCLA. I grew up in Southern California, but I was about to transfer to UCLA, so a whole new school, and also I was gonna move into the dorm, which meant for me, the first time I had ever, you know, not lived with my family and, and I was leaving uh, the home that I had lived in since I was a young child. Also, uh, because of some other things that were going on, I had decided that when that new school year starts, that I would also leave the church that I had grown up in. I had been in the same church since I was a young child going to Sunday school. And when I was 15 years old, sorry, when I was 15 years old, I had become a Christian while I was attending that church. And when I was 18 years old, I got baptized in that church. But when I was 19 years old, uh, God was leading me elsewhere. So I also knew that when I start UCLA, I'm also gonna be changing churches and leaving the only church I had ever known. And for me, uh, the, the other change that was going on emotionally was I was in the process of breaking up with my girlfriend. Not just any girlfriend, she was my dream girlfriend. But, uh, and she was a believer and I was a believer, but our relationship was not uh, God honoring anymore. And through a, a very difficult struggle, I came to the conclusion that God did not really want us to be together. So we were breaking up right at the same time that I was going through all those other transitions. And so I kind of felt like uh, much that had been sure in my life was now being shaken, and um, the comfort of the past was now being exchanged for this unknown future, and I was venturing out into this whole new chapter of my life that was filled with uncertainties. So the week before class started, my first quarter, uh, I had already moved into the dorm, but class hadn't started yet, and I was just exploring the campus, walking around, and I don't, know if, I don't know if you know the UCLA campus, but I came to this place called Jan Steps, right near Royce Hall, and it was a, just a beautiful view of the part of the campus, but also the Santa Monica Mountains, and realizing I'm kind of at this crossroads of my life, and I had my Bible with me, because we had no Bible apps on our phones, we didn't carry phones back then, but the Lord gave me this verse as I'm sitting there at the top of Jan Steps facing the unknown future, I lift my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He goes on to say in Psalm 121, He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Very reassuring words. Uh, the psalm goes on to say, The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. And then I love the last verse, Psalm 121, verse 8. The Lord will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. And as the Lord gave me that scripture, I just felt, and I was praying up there at the top of Jan Steps, and I just felt like the Lord was giving me this calm this sense of peace that I didn't have yet before. And just this sense of assurance that whatever happens, <clears throat> he's going to be with me and it's going to be okay. <clears throat> and I got to thinking, um, you know, if that weren't true, these promises when the Lord says, I'm going to be with you and I will help you and I'll protect you and I'll, uh, I'll watch over you. If that weren't true, then when we go through times of transition and change, uh, it's like, well, we might as well just be anxious for everything because we can't really trust God, right? If it weren't true, then we might be tempted to cling to the security and safety and familiarity of the past. If it weren't true, we might live in fear and maybe resist moving forward. Uh, you know, another thing I think, I think when times are changing, it's stressful 
It can be anxiety producing. It feels insecure. And some people just start to shut down emotionally. Uh, you, even you when churches go through changes, some, some people will be tempted to just withdraw and become passive and uh, just sit on the sidelines. I'm just going to take a wait and see attitude to see what happens. And rather than you know, being in the game, we just sit high up on the bleachers just wanting to see how it all plays out. So there's a temptation there. I think one thing that happens uh, during times of change, if we're not really focused on the Lord, is some people will become angry. They'll be angry that things are changing, or they'll become angry at the people that are causing the change. Uh, They'll be angry at uh, people who might be leaving. In times of uh, fear and uncertainty and anxiety, there's all these temptations, right? Some people will just withdraw and become passive. Some people will become angry and, and start blaming other people for the things that are now making them feel uncomfortable. So I got to thinking, this is a really important deal. Um, let, let me tell you three facts about change. <clears throat> I've been dealing with change you know, all my life and, and all throughout my ministry. And I've thought a lot and prayed about and, and just done some research about change. Uh, let me tell you three things I learned about change. One is that change is hard. Change is hard, and we naturally resist it. <clears throat> you know, and I learned this when, as we were raising my kids. Some of you know my, my daughters, Rachel and Becca, who are, when we left, they were 13 and 8. Now they're 31 and 27. And um, this is what I found out raising my, our daughters, is that change makes me feel sad. Even like when they went off to kindergarten. That's a good thing, right? I mean, I, you know, I should celebrate that they've reached this this pinnacle of life, you know, uh, but it was sad. I don't know. I think I might have cried when they started kindergarten because why? Like it'll never be the same, right? My little baby that I used to carry in my arms is now going off to school. So I, I do think this change is hard, and we naturally resist it. Initially, change feels like loss. I know that. Uh, I think that's natural. We felt the loss when we left this church and this place, and. And uh, as we go through different stages of life, change feels like loss. It can be hard. Uh, you know, this is what I found out as, as ministries and churches go through change, that I, I started to think of it kind of like a minefield. I've been going to Southeast Asia and China twice a year for ministry. Now I go to Japan as well. But uh, the first time I was in Cambodia, I think it was 2007, and one of the things I found, I went to an area in the north part of Cambodia called Batambang, and it's near the Thailand border. But in that area, when the Khmer Rouge were driven from power, <clears throat> uh, they kind of ruled Cambodia and terrorized Cambodia from about 1976 to 79. But when they were driven from power, they didn't just disappear. There was a jungle warfare, guerrilla warfare, that went on for years. And in that northern part of Cambodia, near the Thai border, uh, there were a lot of landmines that were put there during the war and during the battles. And, and some of those are still there, undetonated. So the first time I we went to Cambodia and we went up to that northern area, I, I was surprised you find, uh, you know, like in tourist places and stuff, you find these uh, what they call landmine victims bands and people just sitting on the ground on a sidewalk or outside of a restaurant or something, and they're playing their instruments, but they all have missing limbs. And I learned that they had all lost limbs in when mines have exploded. and. Uh, not just during the war, for years, even today. I think sometimes one of those will go off. And So anyway, I got to thinking about this, that I sometimes feel like being a pastor and leading a church feels a little bit like that whole minefield thing. Like, you know, we, we need to get to the other side, and if we get there safely, hallelujah, praise the Lord, it's wonderful. 
But on the way from here to there, there are all kinds of things that could blow up. And I think when we're going through times of transition and change, that's really true. It's a, it can be an exciting, adventurous time, uh, you know, embarking on a new chapter, and yet it can be a time filled with danger. The, the, uh, the risk of conflict goes way up, misunderstandings, miscommunication, people attributing bad motives to each other, and all, all kinds of stuff. So, you know, I, I know this, that we need to change. Change is hard, we naturally resist it. But initially it feels like loss, and sometimes it brings with it danger. Uh, and, and in fact, this is what I learned about leadership. How we navigate change is really gonna determine the fruitfulness of our leadership, because we're all gonna have to navigate through change. Okay, let me give you a second fact about change. Not only is it hard, but uh, not to change is not an option. Not to change is not an option. Uh, the only constant in, in some ways is change. Um, Yesterday, when I was driving up from Mount Hermon, I was at Mount Hermon all week, and when I was driving up, I didn't have to go this way, but I decided to. I wanted to come up the freeway that goes right past Oracle Arena. Okay, now I know some of you are still grieving the loss in the playoffs. Uh, and I, and I am, I'm, I'm still a Warriors fan. Of course, our Seattle NBA team no longer exists. The Sonics were stolen away from us. Uh, but I am a Warriors fan, and I watched the playoffs, as many of you did, and I saw those losses at Oracle, and it was really sad. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of television shots of Oracle in recounting the history and all that, and uh, how, what a momentous thing it was that the Warriors were, were playing their last games there. So I just felt like, hey, I want to drive by Oracle. I'd seen it on TV a lot in recent weeks, but I wanted to drive by Oracle and, uh, you know, the whole storied history and all that. And then I went up to Jack London Square. Now, when I lived here with my family, we lived in El Cerrito, but we used to love going to Jack London Square. You remember the old spaghetti factory? We could only afford to eat at the cheap restaurants, so we went to the spaghetti factory, and it's no longer there, you know? And a, and a lot of the restaurants that were there when we were uh, going there, they're no longer there. Some of it looks the same, but a lot of it is really different. In fact, we used to love going to the Barnes & Noble. Was it Barnes & Noble that was there? And they're no longer there. So anyway, you know, change is inevitable. I, I don't lament it so much, except it's a little sad to me that it doesn't look the way that I remember it. But um, not to change is not an option. In fact, I've seen about this. When I was at Mount Hermon, I see a lot of friends that I've known for years and decades. And I was thinking about this. You know, when we were young, guys would get together. We used to talk about sports and girls. And now we get together, we talk about our medications and our surgeries, you know, <laughs> our procedures. <laughs> I was talking with uh, Monty and Leslie Kong. I'm, I'm staying with them. And uh, I said to Monty, uh, when, when I come to church this morning, is it okay if I park in the visitor's parking lot? And he said, oh, yeah, feel free. In fact, he said, in fact, you can park in the senior's parking. <laughs> yeah, thanks a lot, Monty. <laughs> but it is a reminder to me that, you know, uh, not to change is not an option. Uh, but here's the thing, third thing I want to say about change is we can navigate change with grace. We really can. We can hopefully navigate change with humor, but with grace. It doesn't have to be like one of those minefield things where there's just explosions going on all over. So I want us to look uh, at the scripture from Deuteronomy 34. Deuteronomy 34 is an interesting passage because it's about change and transition, which also means what? Uncertainty, Right? launching forward into the unknown. A lot of things that were known and comfortable and certain and familiar are now being changed and uprooted 
uh, and, and sometimes when that happens, chaos ensues, right? Now, this is about a change in leadership, and here's how it goes. Deuteronomy 34, uh, verse 1, Then Moses climbed Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah across from Jericho, and there the Lord showed him the whole land. And some of the land is all described there. But you may know this story. Moses has been leading the children of Israel. God used him as the human instrument to lead them out of slavery in Egypt. A lot of miracles were done before Pharaoh to convince Pharaoh that, you know, he really ought to let God's people go. And then Moses led them for 40 years in the wilderness. And now they're right about to enter into the promised land. However, Moses' 40 years of leadership is also about to end. So Moses climbs up Mount Nebo, and um, there the Lord showed him the whole land. I want to skip down now to verse 4. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when I said, I will give it to your descendants, and I have let you see it with your eyes, but you will not cross over into it. So here we see God basically telling Moses, uh, Your time of leadership is coming to a conclusion. And Moses knew this would happen. This is not the first time that that the Lord tells Moses, you're not going to get to enter into the promised land. But now it's actually happening. It's unfolding before Moses' eyes. I want you to think about this. If we're going to um, navigate change with grace, we've got to recognize and submit to God's sovereignty. And to me, this is a passage not just about Moses and the conclusion of his ministry and the end of his life. This is about God's sovereignty. Moses, God is the one who called Moses to leadership 40 years earlier, and now God is the one who is calling Moses to uh, the next phase of his life, which in his case will be, uh, he's going to die up there on Mount Nebo. So somebody put it this way. They said, Moses spent the first 40 years of his life thinking that he was somebody. Remember, he was the prince of Egypt, and he grew up in the royal palace and all that. He spent the first 40 years of his life thinking he was somebody. But then Moses, remember, he had to flee to the wilderness. And so he spent the next 40 years of his life learning that he was nobody and that he really had nothing. For 40 years, it's kind of like a, you know, a blank page in his, in his biography because all we know is that for 40 years, Moses was in the wilderness of Midian. He, became, he went from being the prince of Egypt to being an obscure shepherd, working for his father-in-law, uh, taking care of the sheep in an obscure place. Nobody was writing about him or singing about him or making movies about him, right? So Moses spent 40 years thinking that he was someone, somebody great. Then he spends 40 years learning that he's a nobody as an obscure shepherd in the wilderness. But in his last 40 years, here's what Moses learned. Moses learned what God can do with a nobody who's got, who had nothing except one thing, the willingness to say yes to God. And you may know the story from Exodus 3 and 4 when, when God called Moses. He was, uh, like a lot of biblical leaders, he was a very reluctant leader. And he kept coming up with all these excuses about why he couldn't do what God wanted him to do, which was to you know, go to Pharaoh and confront Pharaoh and, and lead the people to freedom out of their slavery. But he had all kinds of reasons why he couldn't do it. You know, not me, who am I? What if they don't believe me? They probably won't believe me. And I'm nothing, I'm nobody, right? And then finally he says, well, send somebody else, God. So he has a lot of excuses. But God had chosen Moses, and so Moses answers the call. And I just want you to see this, that it was by God's sovereignty that Moses became a leader. 
And now it's in God's sovereign plan that Moses' leadership is coming to an end in that place. Now, I want to look at uh, chapter 34, verse 9. Because now what we see is new leadership starting to emerge. Chapter 34, verse 9. Now Joshua, son of Nun, that was his father's name. It doesn't mean, you know, you're the son of nobody. Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hand on him. So the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord had commanded Moses. And I think about this, you know, we're talking about here God's sovereignty, how he raised up Moses at the right time. God exalted him to leadership, and then Moses brings his leadership to a conclusion at the right time. But now God is providing new leadership for his people because he still cares about his people, and they're about to enter the next chapter of their story, the sacred story. I I want you to think about this. Moses, um, Joshua... How long has God been preparing Joshua for this? 40 years, right? If you read those accounts of the Exodus again, Joshua is right there as an aid or a helper to Moses. Now, this is a long apprenticeship, right? This is a long internship. But for 40 years now, Joshua has been Moses' aid. That's what he's called in Joshua 1, verse 1, Moses' aid. So think about Joshua. Now, I don't know what his ambitions were. I don't know much about his background. But I, knew, I do know this. He has not been, you know, fighting for his own way. He has not been trying to, you know, push Moses out of the way or exalt himself. Basically, what he's been doing is he's been serving faithfully in the task God had given him. And I think he's doing this. He's learning everything he can learn, right? So for 40 years now, he has been kind of mentored by the best, by Moses, And um, now God's going to call Joshua to be the successor for Moses. When I was in seminary, and I was, you know, I was a young buck. I thought we could change the world and all that. And, uh, you know, we've just tried to do our small little part over the last 40 years. But um, one of the things, I don't remember a lot of stuff that I learned in seminary. Some of it was just in one ear and out the other, right? But there are certain things I remember. They were like nuggets of wisdom that really impacted my life. And one of them was this. One of my professors said this. She said, ministry is not a demand that we make. It's a gift that we receive. And we don't do God a favor when we enter into ministry. God does us the favor. Our lives are infused with the significance way beyond ourselves. And that's obviously that stayed with me. I've never forgotten that. I hope I never will. But that idea that ministry or leadership, it's not a demand that I make. It's not like I have a right to do this because I've got the right degree or the right credentials. It's not a demand that I make. It's a gift that I receive. And you know what you're supposed to do when God gives you a gift? Say thank you, right? Be grateful for it. Now, some of you, you've been given ministries you didn't really want. You're still supposed to say thank you. (laughs) Uh, Sometimes you're in that ministry longer than you had planned. You're still supposed to say thank you. And sometimes God moves you out of a ministry that you really enjoyed and maybe still find fulfilling. And when God does that, you know what you're supposed to say? Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Because gift, ministry, leadership, influence is not a demand that we make. It's a gift we receive, a gift from God. So I think Joshua is at that point now. He's ready to uh, receive the mantle of leadership, but it's God's choice. And... uh, God chooses him, you know. So now God has really blessed me. Our church has grown. We planted the church back in 2000 with about 30 adults, and 
I don't know, we run about 500 now. It's been a blessing. I, you know what's really a great blessing? Is we now have the resources to have six pastors on our staff. So I'm the lead pastor. We have five other pastors. And I love them. And I admire them. In a lot of ways, they're smarter and more gifted than I am. In fact, that's a sign of a good leader. Try to surround yourself with people that are smarter and more gifted than you. That's not hard in my case. But uh, I, I love it. But uh, recently, we were, we were in the search to hire a new staff member. And, and you know, resume looked good. Uh, we did a, what do you call it, video interview. That looked pretty good. Then we flew him out from the East Coast to spend a weekend with us and, uh, you know, have meetings with us and, and uh, all that, get to know him. And that all looked good. And then he went back home, and then we had to make a decision about whether to offer him a job or not. So I'm talking with my staff, and the elders had also had a chance to meet him and get to know him a little bit. And we're talking about, you know, you know, he's got these qualifications and these strengths and this experience and all of that. And then I said this, and I always, I always say this. Is he humble and teachable? Because no matter how gifted or intelligent or how well he did in his previous ministry, is he humble and teachable? Because this is what I've learned, and some of it has been through hard experience. If the person's not humble and teachable, I don't want him on my staff. I don't want him on my team because it's going to be poison. Maybe not today or tomorrow, but at some point. So that was really important to me. We said about this guy, okay, he's got, he's, he's got, a, he's got a, a degree from a really good seminary. It's not quite fuller, but it's almost as good. <laughs> and, uh, and, and he had six years of ministry experience, and that was all good. Uh, but I wanted to know this. Is he humble and teachable? So we looked around, we asked around and all that, and uh, that's what we told him. Yeah, he's humble and teachable. Now, he's now been on our staff for two years, and you know what? You know what I discovered? Those people were right. He is. He's humble and teachable, and I like where he's at, but I love where he's going to be, maybe five years from now, ten years from now, because this is what I realized about hiring staff. If people uh, are not humble and teachable, what you see is what you get, you know? Uh, but if they're humble and teachable, they can always get better. They can always keep growing and learning, you know. Um, sometimes someone comes in on our staff, and they kind of compare themselves to the person who held that position previously. And sometimes they feel a little intimidated by that because the person who held that position previously was really competent, really proficient. And to encourage them, you know what I say? They weren't that way when they got here. <laughs> You know, I mean, because they grew, right? Because they're humble and teachable. They kept growing and learning, making mistakes, asking for forgiveness, changing their ways, right? Getting better equipped. And hopefully, you know, that's true for all of us. So I think about this guy, Joshua. Wow, 40 years of, you know, and it's not like he was just doing nothing, right? He's serving. In fact, one time, you know, at some point he was a military leader for the armies of Israel. So, the, but the guy was like one of these humble guys that would, just say, you know, here am I, use me. Wherever I'm needed most, that's where I'll go. Humble and teachable, and then at some point, the Lord says, okay, you're the man. Moses, my servant, has died, and now I'm calling you to lead. Uh, here's another thing I learned. When we're trying to think about who is called to lead, and this is not just to hire a staff person, this is about leaders in our church, lay leaders and volunteer leaders and all that. Uh, this is what I found is that I want to look for certain things. And I'll tell you what, what I look for, besides being humble and teachable and godly character and all of that. I think that when God calls somebody, there's going to be in them some track record of sustained ministry passion. You know, like 
sometimes people feel like, I think I should go into full-time ministry, but I'm not sure. And sometimes three years later, it's not even on their radar. But for other people, it's like still on their heart. They're still thinking about it and praying about it, right? So I think, okay, sustained ministry passion could be a sign that God might be calling the person. The second thing is demonstrated ministry fruitfulness. Because if God's going to call somebody to leadership or into full-time ministry or pastoral work or whatever, hopefully they've already demonstrated some fruitfulness, you know, as a Sunday school teacher or a youth group advisor or a Mount Hermon cabin leader or something. But I think if God's going to call somebody to, to ministry and to leadership, he's going to enable them to be fruitful. So I'm going to look for that. I'm going to look for sustained ministry passion and demonstrated ministry fruitfulness. But the other thing I consider is this. Is there also confirmation by ministry leaders? Like when we're selecting elders, we're kind of in elder selection right now. We're hoping to add one or two elders to our team this fall, and one of our elders is uh, finishing their term. Uh, and when, definitely when we you know, think about staff people, but even just you know, team leaders for ministries in our church, uh, do, is there confirmation by ministry leaders? Like so maybe I know them and I think, oh, that's a good guy. But does anybody else in our church, especially the ministry leaders, the staff or the elders or people in ministry, does anybody else know that person? Can anybody else assess you know, their passion and their fruitfulness and their character you know, and their gifts? So I, I want to look for that, too, because I think that uh, when God calls somebody, generally, if a call to leadership or ministry, generally, we should look for that. You know, sustained ministry passion, demonstrated ministry fruitfulness, and confirmation by ministry leaders. So now it says here in verse 9, Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. Moses kind of had, I don't know, we might say selected him or something like that, uh, yet at the guidance of God. So the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord had commanded Moses. Sound good, right? So God takes care of his people, and uh, as one leader is transitioning out, God raises up and provides another one. I used to have a little bit of panic sometimes when, when elders would be ending their terms and being prepared to step off the board. I mean, some elders, it's like, okay, <laughs> you know, it's been good working with you, but, you know, God bless you. But, but there are some elders that it just kind of ate at me, like, oh, man, I don't know how we can, you know, function without, the, you know, this elder because such a good leader, such a godly person, and... Uh, so there were, there were sometimes, and I remember once two of our, our kind of like our most experienced elders were both stepping off the elder team at the same time. And I did, I had this little panic like, I don't know, if, you know, it'd be really hard to find anybody that could take their place. And I was worried that we're going to have a, you know, a decline in our effectiveness. But this is what I found out. Nobody could really take their place. They're, they're unique people with unique gifts. But God provided. So I've been in ministry long enough now, 17 years here at CLC and 19 years at Lighthouse. I've been around long enough to know that uh, we don't have to panic during times of transition or even during times of loss. That the Lord is in charge of his church and he's faithful. And if we're all faithful, God will uh, enable us to get the right people in the right places. So, and we are in elder selection right now, but I'm not panicking because... I've seen this. Uh, God can provide. Okay, so navigating change with grace. I think we learn a lot here from Deuteronomy 34 about submitting to God's sovereignty and just recognizing the, the people that God is raising up. Uh, you might notice, too, that there's, there's grieving in this passage. 
It, it says in uh, verse 7, well, interesting, verse 5 says, uh, at the end it says, so the Lord, uh, verse 6 it says, the Lord buried him, buried Moses in Moab in the valley opposite Beth Peor, but to this day no one knows where his grave is. And you know what surprises me about that? We've got the Lincoln Memorial, we've got the Washington Monument, you know, when, when a great famous person dies, everybody knows where they're buried, right? And we, we build statues and monuments and we have visitor centers and sometimes museums and all that. Now here Moses, he was the greatest leader of the people of Israel. He led them for 40 years and uh, it says he died. Now, I haven't checked this scholastically, academically, but this is the only time I could think of in the Bible where it says God buried somebody. Did you notice that in verse 6? He died and then he, that means God is the subject, he buried him in Moab. Now, you would think that if God is going to bury somebody, he knows exactly, precisely how to do it, right? Which newspapers to call, which, you know, news outlets, and, you know, how to put it on YouTube and all that. Here's what God did. He buries Moses on the mountain of Moab in a way that no one knows where the grave is. It's interesting to me, isn't it? And I'm thinking, okay, I don't know all of what's going on here, but obviously God did not want them to erect a shrine to Moses, they didn't want him just to venerate Moses and his memory and cling to the, the security of the past and just long for the good old days, right? It was time to move on. So nobody knows where Moses is buried and there's no shrine there. But God provides new leadership in this man, Joshua. Now, let's look briefly at the next page, the next chapter. This is Joshua chapter 1. And I think this is probably in many ways a far more famous passage, Joshua 1, 1 through 9. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, now these are God's words to Joshua. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give to them, to the Israelites. And I will give you, you, Joshua, I will give you every place where you set your foot as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon, from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. This is what we call the Holy Land. It was a much larger territory than it is today, but that was what we call the Holy Land or the Promised Land. Verse 5, no one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. You may remember that Jesus said that to his disciples as well. I will never leave you or forsake you. Verse 6, be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it and then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Now, how many of you are already kind of familiar with that passage? It's a very famous passage, a great passage, well worth reading and meditating on and studying. I want to offer three thoughts about leadership from this passage. You may have noticed that three times the Lord tells Joshua, the new leader, and you've been prepared for 40 years. You've been mentored by the best. You've had a lot of experience already, but now I'm, I'm calling you to a place of leadership, 
And three times God has to say, be strong and courageous. You know what that makes me think? Uh, Joshua maybe was not that strong and not that courageous. Right? Despite all his experience and all his preparation, he feels inadequate. Right? Or maybe, maybe he enters into this, he says, you know, I've had leadership experience, but I've never led at this level before. And, and before, it was kind of like, although I had responsibilities, it was like the buck stops with Moses, right? And if something goes wrong, we can blame Moses. But now, Joshua, you the man, you the man, right? And so I, I'm thinking, because God has to say to him three times, be strong and courageous, I'm thinking, he's probably, you know, I don't know, maybe got some fear and trepidation, maybe he's got the clammy, you know, sweaty palms and uh, I don't know, when I get real nervous, my voice starts to crack and do stuff weird, and I don't think it's puberty. I think I've been through that already. <laughs> but um, anyway, this is striking to me that, that God has to tell him three times to be strong and courageous. Now, what I want you to see, though, is each time God tells him be strong and courageous, and then he tells him something that I think is very significant. The first time is in verse 6. He says, be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. So I think he's saying to Joshua, when you lead, you're going to have to be strong and courageous because you're going to lead these people to receive what I want to give them. In other words, when you lead, you lead for the good of the people. You don't lead for your own ego. You don't lead to, for your own ambition. You don't lead to exalt yourself and glorify your name. You lead for the good of the people. God tells Joshua, I want to give these people the land. It's a, the land he promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all that. They've been promised this land for hundreds of years. Now they're going to go in and, and get it. And, and the Lord tells Joshua, I want you to lead the people to receive what I've promised them. I want you to lead the people to receive what I planned for them. In other words, I, I've got blessing. I've got good for these people. And you're going to be the instrument, the human instrument, to help them get there. Now, what I learned about leadership from this is if I'm going to lead, I've got to lead for the good of God's people. It's not about me and how good I feel or how gratified I feel or how much my ego is built. It's about how can I lead in a way that blesses the people? How can I lead in a way that grows the people? How can I lead in a way that builds the church? I've got to care about my church more than I care about myself. Now, here's what I'm thinking. I'm at an age right now where people are asking me, Oh, how long are you going to do this? Which I think is their polite way of saying, you're getting kind of old, aren't you? Uh, people say, oh, do you have any plans to retire? Now, I'll tell you something, and I haven't really talked with our church about this, but I'm planning to retire. I hope it's years from now, but I am planning to retire. And I'm starting to think about, uh, about when and where and, and you know, who's going to take over and all of that. It's, it's hopefully years away still. But uh, I am old enough that we should start thinking about it and planning for it. Uh, the reason I mention that is because I have to think about what's best for my church. How long should I stay in the saddle and lead the church? Well, what's going to be best for the church? Right? It, it's not about me and, oh, just hanging on as long as I can. But it's like, what's going to be best for the church? I, I think, you know, as a pastor, that's what's got to be on my heart. Right? This is not just like a career, and I'm looking for career advancement. It's what's going to be best for the church. Remember, Jesus says uh, the good shepherd is going to lay down his life for the sheep. Right? And um, he says, if you try to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake and the sake of the gospel, you'll find it. So really, leadership is really a call to servanthood. And it's a call to lay down my life uh, for the sake of the Lord, 
but for the blessing of God's people. So when I think about retirement and succession and all that, this is one of the things I think about is, okay, what would be best for the church in terms of how long I should be the lead pastor and when should I turn it over um, and, and, you know, and who should receive that mantle next? That's not going to be my decision instantly. It's going to be confirmation by ministry leaders in our church that are going to make that decision about who the next lead pastor is. Although I have a voice in that decision, but it's not my decision. Okay, so I just want to say this, that, that when the Lord says be strong and courageous because you'll lead these people to inherit the land I swore to give them, it's a reminder to me that when we lead, we're leading not our people but God's people, and we lead them into God's purposes for the blessing of those people. Okay, here's a second lesson I learned about leadership. In the very next verse, verse 7, God repeats these words, be strong and, and this time he says, be strong and very courageous, be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Don't turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips, meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it, then you'll be prosperous and successful. Here's what I learned about leadership from this. The second time God says, be strong and courageous, he says, and you've got to lead according to God's word. Right? It's not about my expertise or my experience or what I learned in seminary or even my brilliant thoughts now or, or what I learned on YouTube. You can learn how to cook on YouTube. But Okay, so he says, make sure you always stay close to the word, that you're reading the word, that you're meditating or reflecting on it, and especially that you are responding to it in obedience. That's the instruction to leaders, right? To be people of the word, to be teachers of the word, uh, you know, sometimes I think about this. I, I had to write a description. I didn't have to, but I, I, recently I wrote a description, and it's just a draft, but it's a draft of the job description for the lead pastor of our church, Lighthouse Church. And I wrote it in conjunction with uh, a lot of discussion from the elders, and it's just a draft. But um, one of the things we put in there is, uh, you know, this, this person, whoever becomes the next lead pastor, they've really got to be able to, to teach the word. You know, they've got to have good people skills. They've got to have a, a growing devotion for, to God and, and submission to his will and his lordship. But they've really got to be able to teach the word too because that's what's going to feed the people. You know, what really equips the, the church and, and makes the church healthy is not how brilliant the pastor is. It's how much the pastor can communicate to people the truth of God's word, right? Because that's, what, that's where we need to get our marching orders. That's what's going to correct us and that's what's going to equip us. So I would say, yeah, I learned from this, lead for the good of the people and lead according to God's word. Help, help people to get God's word in their life and in their heart and, and learn to study the Bible and all of that. Let me tell you the, the last one, the third lesson here about leadership that I get. So there is a third time where God tells Moses the same instructions. Verse 9, have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? But this time the Lord says, don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And I think, I, I don't know if this is sacrilegious to say this, but I think God nailed it. He says, I want you to lead, uh, be strong and courageous. And then he says this, don't be afraid, don't be discouraged. Those are two very common dangers for leaders or people in ministry. Afraid, the fear of change, the fear of the unknown, the fear of being inadequate, you know, 
uh, I've spent a lot of my life now, you know, preaching God's word. And uh, this, I've told people this at times. I think that the call to preach was God's way of keeping me humble. You know why? Because every time I have an opportunity to teach or to preach, I'm just one message away from falling flat on my face. You know what? And that, that really helps your prayer life. <laughs> it's like, oh, God, help. You know, uh, I, I have a prayer that I pray every time I, I'm going to uh, share the word, teach the word. And, and I'll tell you what the prayer is. It goes like this. May the Spirit of God use the word of God taught by a servant of God. That's me. right? May the Spirit of God use the word of God taught by a servant of God to transform people God loves into the likeness of Jesus. Some of those people are believers already. Some of those people are not believers. But may the Spirit of God use the Word of God taught by a servant of God to transform people God loves into the likeness of Jesus. And this is what I, I firmly believe this. If that happens, that's a win. Whether anybody comes up and says, hey, great sermon, Wayne, way to go, you killed it. Or whether nobody says anything. I'll tell you this as a pastor, when I give a sermon and nobody says anything, I assume it's bad. Oh, man, that was a dud. Forgive me, Lord. Blew it big time. Really discouraged. Sometimes I give a message, and it didn't seem to go too well to me, and I'm thinking that was a dud. And then somebody will come up and say, wow, thanks for your message. God really spoke to me. And I never verbalize this, but I'm thinking, you're kidding, really? Because <laughs> I thought the message wasn't very good, right? So anyway, this is, this is what I realize is that the important thing is not uh, that it's impressive or people say, oh, you ought to publish that sermon or I'm going to have my friends listen to it online. That's nice to hear. But the important thing is this. Did the Spirit of God use the Word of God taught by a servant of God to transform people God loves? Sometimes I add these words. For, to extend God's kingdom, God's mission, for God's glory. If that happens, if the Spirit of God uses the word of God taught by a servant of God to transform people God loves to advance God's mission for God's glory, that's a win. Whether anybody says, hey, good sermon or not. Even if somebody, you know, back there fell asleep. Uh, if that happens, that's a win. Okay, so those are some things I learned about leadership here. Lead for the good of God's people. Lead according to God's word. And lead with the assurance of God's presence. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Why? Or why not? For the Lord, your God, will be with you wherever you go. And I think it's the presence of God that changes everything. Uh, the presence of God transforms your outlook, your attitude, your fear, right? The presence of God changes everything. I learned a prayer many years ago, and I still pray this prayer. It goes like this. It's a good morning prayer. Lord, help me to remember that nothing can happen to me today that you and I together cannot handle. It's a good prayer, isn't it? Especially when you're feeling anxious or you're dreading that meeting that you're going to have to have with somebody or you've got this assignment looming overhead and you've totally got writer's block or something. Lord, help me to always remember nothing can happen to me today that you and I together cannot handle. The presence of God makes all the difference. Now, I've probably been saying this other thing for years, so even when I pastor here, I'm sure I must have said it, but uh, it means so much to me. And it goes like this. And this is about navigating change with grace. I know not what the future holds. None of us do. Only God knows. Right? I know not what the future holds. But I know the one who holds the future. I really do. 
and his name is Jesus. And he's got the whole world in his hands. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he has come to inaugurate the kingdom of God, and he is going to return to usher in the kingdom in all its fullness and power and glory and majesty. So as we navigate time to change, we know not what the future holds, but we know the one who holds the future. And he is good, and he is faithful, and he'll see us through. Let's pray. Well, we do thank you, Lord, that you are here with us and for us and that you will lead us. May we follow faithfully. May you make us fruitful for your kingdom and your glory. In Jesus' name.